0: Good morning. Good morning. Now Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for giving us this time that we can gather together to express our love to you and for each other. And help us to listen carefully now to the exposition of your word and to examine to see if these words that we hear are words that you have recorded for us in your holy scripture. Give us willing hearts. We pray that... Our time here is encouraging and nourishing, and now we ask you to feed us and challenge us and grow us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Bill Johnson and the Bethel Church in Redding, California, are part of a group of churches called the New Apostolic Reformation. It is a a movement within the Christian church which is, uh, frankly, dangerous and spiritually unsound. Um, Bethel Church is promoting a word of faith teaching, prosperity gospel, dominionism. They practice activities such as grave sucking. They have other abhorrent practices and doctrines. Um, there's a particular phenomena that is often associated with the Bethel Church in Reading, and it's called by their leadership as manifesting the presence of God. And among the different ways that God's presence is manifested in the church is from these smoke clouds that form in the church, which they, did, which they call the, the glory of God. Uh, also, it's been recorded that gold dust falls from the ceiling and angels' feathers fall from the ceiling. Of course, some of these are a little easier to critique than others. Like, it's pretty easy to pick on uh, angel feathers falling from the ceiling because angels actually don't have feathers, and <laughs> there's nowhere in the Scripture where um, angels are recorded as appearing in form as something that has feathers. And even if they did, the falling of feathers does not mean, as the leadership says it means, that angels are nearby. It's just patently absurd. Um, it, we could say that these phenomena are unusual, and we could say that we don't have a good explanation for them, but we can clearly say that they're not found in the scripture, that nothing like that is even encouraged for us to, to experience. However, that's not the main problem at the Church of Bethel. The bigger problem actually stems from their theology. Bethel Church and Bill Johnson have, are the natural outgrowing of influences like men like John Wimber and the Toronto Blessing that went through and the other churches that are part of this New Age Apostolic Reformation johnson teaches that people today are receiving these special um, insights that come from god and that god is restoring to the church new apostles and new prophets and on the surface that doesn't sound all that threatening except the point is that they minimize the teaching of the scripture as being incomplete or insufficient and now we need these super prophets these new apostles to interpret for us all the information that God chose to leave out in the um, delivery of the, of the Scripture. And Bethel Church is really into um, divine healing and divine deliverance. These are all demonstrations of the presence of the Spirit. They call these signs and wonders the evidences and the proof that salvation has really taken place. Um, Bethel Churches teach that you can speak something into existence and you can command God to speak something into existence. They teach that physical healing and, um, is part of what Christ accomplished on the atonement, and so you should not pray in your prayers. When you pray for physical healing, you should not pray if it would be thy will because it's always God's will to heal, and when you pray, If it be thy will, you're expressing doubt and a a lack of faith. Um, People are always looking for signs and wonders. There's nothing new about that. It's as old as human civilization. We're we're always looking for something spiritual, something phenomenal, and because we're drawn to that, it's pretty easy for us to get drawn off track from truth. It's easy for us to get derailed or misled from what's in the Scripture. I mentioned earlier that... uh, one of the influences of the Bethel Church was John Wimber. And John Wimber um, started, actually he didn't start. He was one of the one of the beginning founders of the Vineyard Christian Fellowship, which began in in Southern California in 1977. And John Wimber was also into this super prophets and. Um, showing signs signs and wonders, and he declared that this is part of how evangelism, and now we're getting a little closer to where I wanted to go today, how evangelism is to take place, that evangelism is to be done through these signs and wonders. So what precedes somebody coming to Christ is you need to cast out demons of adultery, demons of lust, demons of, of greed. You need to clear the air so that a person can then move on to the deeper things. And so we need these signs and wonders and words of knowledge, and he means information that you couldn't have except by special insight from the Holy Spirit. You need these in order for evangelism to take place. And so Wimber uh, puts in juxtaposition what he calls power evangelism, and he puts it opposed to programmatic evangelism. So he's into power evangelism, these demonstrations of signs and wonders, the presence of the Holy Spirit, as a way to not only win someone to Christ, but then to prove, in fact, that they they are a Christian. And he denigrates what he calls programmatic evangelism by saying that it's all message-oriented. It appeals to rational arguments. I'm quoting him. It attempts to reach the minds and the heart of people without the aid of the charismatic gift. And he would say that furthermore, if you were brought to Christ through this programmatic evangelism, that there's something terribly inadequate about your conversion experience. In contrast, um, he promotes this power evangelism, um, which um, because you're freed from the demon that's, that's keeping you back, you know, you're, you're freed from any physical ailment, any uh, uh, demon possession, any bitterness, uh, because you're freed from these major obstacles, now you can, go, you can go on to the deeper things of the Spirit. And so we're told that it gives us greater confidence to move forward in Christ because we have had this cleansing done by removing these demons of oppression from our life. Now, it's kind of clear, I'm not hiding it too deeply, that I think that that teaching is dangerous. It's not only wrong, it's dangerous. And... While that's true, and I'm quick to criticize that kind of theology, let's be honest here. There's some things that John Wimber and Bill Johnson teach which are, in fact, true. And we need to acknowledge that we have these points of similarity, things in which all Christians should agree upon. And the first thing that I think that we can agree upon that these guys are into is that spiritual warfare is a reality. And we can agree on that. And we're warned in Ephesians 6 to put on the full armor of God. And we're told many times that we have an enemy who's very deceitful and is, and is prowling around to devour us. But having said that, you have to also look at what Ephesians 6 tells us about defeating our enemy. He doesn't say, Paul doesn't say in Ephesians 6, that we need to approach this all by doing wonders and miracles He tells us that we are to be clothed with a Christian character and we're to take up the offensive weapon of what? The sword of the spirit, which is, Ephesians 6, 17, the word of God. That's how we are to fight our enemy. Now, the second thing, a point of agreement with Wimber and and Johnson is that we, we, let's be honest, that the church as a whole is not doing a very good job of evangelism. The church largely is quite anemic, and we do quite frequently approach evangelism as purely a a mental thing, purely involving our our intellect only and not our heart. Let's be honest that frequently the church is formal and dull, and we long for that spiritual activity, but but we've rejected it, and in the process, Very little evangelism is actually taking place in the churches of sound theology. Now, a third thing that we can agree here, you know, before I go on, I'm trying to remember this quote by D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was, I'm misquoting it, but you'll get the gist of it. He was once confronted by someone who said that they didn't like the way D.L. Moody did evangelism. He said, I understand that you don't like the way I do evangelism. What's your way? And the person said, "Well, well, I don't. Then Moody said, well, in that case, I like the way I do it better than the way you don't. (laughs) You know, it's easy for us to stand back and criticize the way charismatic churches are doing evangelism, but they could easily respond, I like the way I do it better than the way you don't. Anyway, moving on, the third point of agreement that we would have is that let's be honest that God does do miracles. Miracles do take place. You know, nothing's changed in the church era, which then limits God to doing miracles. If you didn't believe that God does miracles, there really wouldn't be much point in praying for somebody that was sick, would there? I really believe that God does miracles today. In fact, I have witnessed them. But while I believe in miracles being done today, and I can attest to the fact that I have seen miracles performed, let's be honest that most of the stuff that's presented to us as a miracle of God is practically baloney. You know, it, it's, it's charlatanism, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's deception. It's done to pretend that someone has the power of God behind them when, in fact, they're just meant to deceive us. Above all, we should not alter Bible-taught ways of doing evangelism by mistakenly claiming to have some kind of special revelation or doing some uh, remarkable miracles. We've been studying a lot about, Paul's been talking, and and, and today we'll talk about this too, about the false, empty religion of works. And then today we're going to move on to a false, empty religion of signs and wonders. But both of these things are to be compared to what the Bible consistently says is we're to have a religion of faith alone in Christ alone and that we trust in the Scriptures only for our ultimate authority and not anything that any man, even a super-apostle or super-prophet can promote today. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 9, verse 30. (laughs) We're skipping a couple verses only because the verses we're skipping. Just reiterate where we were last week. But we'll pick it up in verse 30 of chapter 9. And as a way of reminder where, we're, where we have been, the first three chapters of Romans, Paul's talking about that all men without exception have fallen short of the glory of God. We've, we're not living up to God's demands, to his righteous standards. And as a consequence of that, all men without exception are under God's condemnation. Gentiles are guilty before God because we have rejected what God has revealed about himself, that which can be seen, In creation, and instead of worshiping the one true God, we worship images that we've made up. We worship creation, we worship images of the creation. So instead of worshiping God, we exchange the truth of God for man made images, man made philosophies, um, things that we prefer rather than what God has declared. And so as a consequence of us worshiping other things than God, we are told that God has given us over in judgment to our own sin, a very important concept, you know, that God tolerates and then he gives us over to the consequence of our sin. He goes on to say that the Jews are also guilty. They've actually been given the revelation from God about what he expects and what he wants through his laws. And while they accept the law and they teach the law to others, they fail to live up to those standards which they promote themselves. Consequently, the the Bible says that both the Jew and the Gentile are under divine condemnation. we get jumped ahead to Romans chapter 9, and Paul is expressing his deep regret, um, his his, um, grief that he feels that his own people, the Jews, have rejected God in their unbelief. And he says he's been telling us that if you're saved, we're saved by God's grace, and we can't lose that. And then he poses a hypothetical question. If you can't lose your salvation, what about the Jews who were chosen by God? They're the elect. They're the ones that have been singled out for his blessing. They've rejected God, and God has rejected them. Isn't that an example of how you can lose your salvation? Paul says, no, the explanation for that has to do with the doctrine of election, that God does not choose everyone for salvation, that just being part of physical Israel doesn't mean that you are part of the elect Israel, that not all who are Israel are Israel, but only those whom he chooses to call to salvation against those that he chooses to overlook, not that he's causing them to reject, to reject salvation, but he just doesn't interfere, doesn't choose to, to, to call them. And then we have uh, a couple examples of God selecting from among the Jews how he, he chose to bless Isaac and not Ishmael. He chooses to love Jacob but not Esau. And this is an example of God's divine election. It's not an example of God's failure to save those whom he claimed to. And that brings us now up to the text before us today, Romans 9, beginning in verse 30. What shall we say then? That God, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as, it, but as if it were based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So Paul is saying that Israel's failure has to do or is concerning their quest for righteousness. And although Israel might be commended for her zeal in pursuing righteousness, they are at the same time condemned for the lack of obtaining that righteousness. Their their, their zeal is genuine, and they imagine that's what God wants, is for them to be zealous for the things of God. However, they're misinformed. They're, They're ignorant of what God really wants. And so Paul tells us that what they're ignorant of is the obtaining of righteousness from God, God's righteousness. They don't want righteousness given to them through grace, They don't want to accept it as a gift. They want to achieve it on their own. People are doing that today. You know, God offers forgiveness and grace. He offers righteousness to us. But we want to earn it. We want to deserve it. We don't want to accept it as a gift of grace because that really defies our own character, our own sense of accomplishment. He there, here he, he tells them it. Israel had been given the law, which should lead to righteousness. They'd even been given their Messiah, who presents them with the righteousness of God. How could they possibly reject that? How could they be ignorant of his own righteousness? Because they just wanted to make it on their own merits, not not on on grace. Israel failed, we are told in... Where are we? In verse 4... I think so, I think we're in verse 4, that Christ is the end of the law. Um, in the end of the law here doesn't mean that the law has ended. It means that Christ is the fulfillment of it. He is the ultimate um, conclusion of it. He, he's the one um, that, that the law points to, that the law ultimately leads to. The fact is that all Christians don't agree with that statement, that Christ is the end of the law, meaning the fulfillment of the law, there are a lot of Christians who believe that the law is bad and that grace is good. And one of my good friends, who's a Bible teacher, who's also terribly ignorant of the Bible, teaches that everything about law is bad and everything about grace is good. And so our our objective as human beings is to try to rid ourselves from this evil thing of the law. It needs to be cast away as, a, as an ancient relic. It's of no value to us. We're Christians. We're new covenant believers. The law was for old covenant believers for the Jews. And so we want nothing to do with Jewish law. We want to reject it completely because that's what's keeping us from grace. Is that what the Bible says? Is that what we've learned through Romans? Let's take a quick run through Romans, what Paul has been saying. Um, chapter 3, verse 1. He says the law is a blessing from God. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. The law was given as a revelation of his righteousness, a standard of what God expects of the righteousness that God has. Um, Chapter 3, verse 19, he says, by means of the law, no sinner is to be saved, but but we are shown to be sinners through the law. The law bears witness of the righteousness of God in the person of Jesus, Uh, chapter 3, 21. The law is given to define sin, that men would recognize it as such something they would not have been able to do without the law. That's uh, chapter 7, verse 7. Paul says that the law is spiritual, 714, that it's holy, righteous, and good, 712, that the Christian loves the law and he loves to do what the law requires, 714 through 17 that our failure to live up to the law demonstrates the weakness of our flesh and the evil of our own sin, Seven, seventeen through 22, that the law requires that uh, the law's requirements are met by those who walk in the Spirit, chapter 8, verse 4, that those who love one another fulfill the law of God, chapter 13, verse 8 through 10. The, The law is hardly annulled by the coming of Christ. And Jesus didn't say he came to annul the law He said, Matthew 5, 17, that he came uh, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So in verse 4, where it says Christ is the end of the law, he's not talking about annulling the law or rejecting the law or trying something new as if now we're in plan B and plan A didn't work. He's telling us that Christ is the fulfillment, the ultimate goal of the law, the, the pinnacle of everything that it pointed to. The law points to and bears testimony of Christ. The law is good. It tells us who God is and what God wants. Verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness, this righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. This is a quotation from uh, Leviticus 18, verse 6. Paul likes this quotation, and he uses it in a couple other places, one of which is Galatians 3.12. There he says, um, The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Um, The the actual text from Leviticus, Moses is writing, God is speaking through Moses, and um, God says, Keep my decrees and my laws, for the man who obeys them shall live by them, I am the Lord. In both of these passages, in all three of these passages, we're, we're contrasting the way of faith against the way of works to show that they're mutually exclusive. No one can be saved by a religion of works no matter how hard he wants to because prior to salvation, you can't be saved by works. In fact, you don't want to do what the law requires. Deep down inside you, you rebel against the whole concept of somebody telling you how to live your life. The reality, of course, is that most of the world's religions are a religion based on works or following laws. Christianity has always been, even through the law, pointing to grace. The Old Testament saints were saved by grace in faith, looking forward to the cross, just as we are saved exactly the same way. Nothing has changed we are still saved by faith, by grace, looking back at the cross. Paul's been showing us the danger of this empty, pointless religion of works. Now in verse 6, he's going to write about this dangerous religion of signs and wonders, and he's putting it in juxtaposition of the religion which is by faith alone. Verse 6, But the righteousness that is by faith says... Don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. So here's a second quotation from the Old Testament, this time from Deuteronomy 30, verse 12. Now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It's not up in heaven, so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea and get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. No, the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so you, so you may obey it. Here's the point that God is telling them that they don't need anything phenomenal. They have the word of God. They need to do what they're already aware of. They don't need to seek out any additional revelation. They need to rather occupy themselves with the truth that's already been revealed to them. Now, in the passage that Paul's referring to here, he's, he's changing the text slightly to prove his point. And so when he talks about this, uh, Moses' reference, he, uh, he adds this to ascending, who will ascend to heaven, and then Paul adds um, that that is to bring Christ down, and then the reference to going to the deep or the abyss, depending on your text here, um, to, and then Paul adds that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. It seems kind of perplexing, but the whole point of that is he's suggesting here that this is something which is really impossible to do. It's almost proverbial. You know, and who, who could actually go to heaven and pull Christ down? Who could go to the grave and, and bring Christ back? You know, it, it can't be done. But if you could, that would be amazing, right? That would really be a tremendous sign and wonder. If you could just... Bring Christ on demand. You'd be a miracle worker. People would really be impressed if you could invoke the presence, the person or the power of Christ on demand. But Paul is telling us we're not to look for that any more than we are to look for any further revelation beyond what God has already provided for us. Now, when Moses had been... Moses is wrapping up his career when this text, Moses writes this, this uh, passage from Deuteronomy. At, Moses is about ready to leave them, and he's telling them that. And the people are actually quite alarmed, because they're saying, well, who's going to lead us if Moses, the miracle worker, isn't with us anymore? And then they're starting to be filled with anxiety and questions about that. Who's going to lead us when the miracle worker's gone? And Moses is basically telling them, you don't need another miracle worker, since you have the law of God, you have God's testimony. What you need to do is what God's already told you to do. What they need, he says, is already very near them. Um, in fact, it's in their mouths and in their hearts. That's Deuteronomy 30 verse 14. But of course, they're not satisfied with that. They're not satisfied with just take the word of God and go with it. They want wonders. They want to be impressed. They want miracles. And that's never gone away. By the time that Christ comes, here we have the people who don't believe in him, who are his major critics, who doubt him. And what are they doing? They're demanding that he perform miracles for them. Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. These are, this is from the people who don't believe in him. They doubt what he has to say. And they're saying, before we believe, you gotta wow us. Well, what does Jesus respond? A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except for the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, now one greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. You realize Jonah was a very successful preacher, but he did no miracles. He went to a very hostile audience, people who didn't want to hear what he had to say. He did no miracles, and yet Nineveh repented. The queen of the south came to hear Solomon, and yet Solomon performed no miracles in Israel. But she came and she heard the word and she was changed. And now these Jews come and they demand that Jesus give them a sign, which actually is a great evasion since their real problem was they didn't like what he was saying. It's not that they didn't think he was speaking the truth. They didn't like what he was saying. They wanted him to razzle-dazzle them. And Jesus is saying... The preaching alone was enough to convict the Ninevites. The words of Solomon alone were enough to instruct the queen of the south. The word of the gospel alone is what people need to hear that gives them life and restoration and hope and salvation, not miracles. Well, do miracles happen today? Well, yes, of course they do. Like I said, I have seen it. But God is not bound to perform at your command. He is God. And sometimes He has a will for you that includes not healing you. Is the Holy Spirit still manifesting Himself in signs and wonders today? Yes, of course He is. And we shouldn't limit what God is doing or the Holy Spirit can do. The point is that we are not to seek Miracles as the evidence of the true gospel. A religion of signs and wonders is just as big of a hoax as a religion of works. Both are attempts to do something which God has declared to be outside of the Christian proclamation. And we might also note that as much as we might be impressed to watch a miracle, as much as it might amuse us to see them, These miracles have never created faith in anyone's heart. Last week, we were talking about Pharaoh. Who has seen a lot of impressive miracles take place? And his heart was not softened. People that demanded that Christ prove himself through the performance of miracles, he did. He showed them many miracles, but it doesn't promote faith. Why is that? Because the power of God that saves sinners is not seen in any signs and wonders. It's seen at the cross of Christ when he died for our sins. Verse 8. But what does the word say? What, What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. R.C. Sproul said, Paul conjoins two elements here. He doesn't just say that you must confess with your lips and profess with your mouth in order to be saved. Every Christian is called to profess their faith. We are to profess the faith, but the profession without authentic faith attending it will justify no one. I don't tire of repeating that because one of the great perils of the church in our day is the way in which we do evangelism. We are so zealous to win people to Christ and to persuade them of the truth of the gospel that we are not satisfied with simply proclaiming the gospel to them and then allowing the Holy Spirit to take that truth and pierce human hearts with it. We want to give assistance to make sure our evangelistic statistics are good. We have come up with various techniques for doing so. The technique employed at a general crusade is the altar call. People are asked to respond to the gospel by coming to the front of the church or the coliseum, or to raise their hand, pray a prayer, sign a card. All these techniques are designed to urge people to take a step to finalize their commitment to Christ. Nothing is actually wrong with those things unless we think that walking down the aisle, raising our hand, signing a card, or saying the sinner's prayer will get us into the kingdom of God. If we think so, we are in trouble. We have to understand that a profession of faith alone will never justify us. Possession of faith, not profession of it, is the necessary condition for our justification. That's why Paul does not say that, if we, that we are saved if we confess with our mouth. He adds the condition, you must believe in your heart. Someone once asked me, how can I know if I've been elect? He replied, this is what you were elected to. Salvation. Instead of worrying about the intricacies that attend the doctrine of election, we must get down to the simplest principle. If we confess with our mouths and believe with our hearts, we shall be saved. We will not do that unless we are elect. Do you believe in your heart and trust in Christ alone? If so, then I can give you full assurance of your salvation. Verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. There's a lot of different ways, frankly, that we confess Christ in our lives. We confess Christ publicly when we come together here on Sunday morning and we, and we worship the Lord. We're participating in this corporate worship. We're professing our faith in Christ. We, we confess Christ when we participate in the sacraments. Here before us is the sacrament of the Lord's Supper or communion, and we also have the sacrament of baptism. Uh, We confess our faith in Christ when we uh, spend time with God's people. Uh, We confess our faith in Christ when we we read our Bible, uh, when we conduct ourselves with integrity at at our work. Uh, We confess our faith in Christ when we do justly and love mercy and walk humbly before the Lord. And we profess our faith in Christ when we remain steadfast to the moment of our death, ready to meet the Lord. Yeah. Unfortunately, however, there's a segment of Christianity, even within the evangelical church, which restricts this co- concept of confessing our faith to, in Christ to uh, that, you, that all you have to do is confess Jesus as, lo- as Savior, but you don't have to have him as Lord. So this whole section of Christianity teaches that you can be saved by the mere assent. You just simply agree that God sent his son to die on the cross for sinners. And all you have to do is, is believe that. So it reduces the gospel to the mere fact of you, that you believe that you have this knowledge that God saves sinners. But what's missing here is any anything, effort to, to repent uh, to turn away from our sin, uh, any uh, recognition that, that Christ calls us to abandon our old life and live for him. And so we have this, this misconstrued idea that you can be saved and call yourself a Christian and have full assurance that you're going to live in heaven, but go on living just as you did before, and that there's nothing different between your life and a pagan's life except your nod that Jesus died on the cross. You can behave exactly like the unsaved man. If that's true, then what's a Christian? What is a Christian? How can you call yourself a Christian when there's no repentance, no discipleship, no change of behavior, no perseverance in the faith? Jim Boyce said, Several years ago, I wrote a book to explore the meaning of Christ's call to discipleship, and in it, I examined the matter of cost. I found that Jesus always stressed the cost of coming to him. He never said anything to suggest even remotely that a person could come to him as a savior and remain unchanged. That insight changed me. I said in the book that if I had been asked earlier what minimum amount of doctrine a person needed to know in order to become a Christian, or what minimum price he would have to pay to follow Jesus, I probably would have replied, as many others still do, stressing very little demand. But now I say, the minimum amount a person must believe to be a Christian is everything. And the minimum minimum amount a person must give is all. You can't hold back even a fraction of a percent of yourself. Every sin must be abandoned. Every false thought must be repudiated. You must be the Lord's entirely. That's why we say that if there's no evidence of new life, there's no new life. If there's no new life, the person is not a true Christian regardless of his profession. Is it possible to receive Jesus as Savior and not have him as Lord? No. Verse 12. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for there's the same Lord as Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. One of my good friends believes that... she, She has a son who's not a believer, who's not a Christian, and she dearly loves her son. And she also believes in predestination and divine election, and she deeply laments the fact that her son wants desperately to be a Christian, but he's not elect, so we can't be. What does this text say? Everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, if it wasn't for that teaching right there, we might be tempted to think that the doctrine of election might exclude us or me because I am, in the depth of my heart, a complete derelict. The good news of the gospel is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what a jerk you are. It doesn't matter if you are a thief, an adulterer, a murderer. The gospel is for anyone who will call on him and be saved. You may have been living in sin for a very long time, You may be guilty of all kinds of heinous sins. The text says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That anyone who wants, longs for, calls on God will be saved. How do we justify that? How do we put this in in the frame of reference with election? That if you're not saved and you don't get saved, it's because you don't want to be. You don't call on the name of the Lord. The fact is that we're, we're, we're not saved through works. We're not saved through miracles. But that doesn't mean that salvation is then something extraneous to us, something that mechanically happens to us. We're just simply going along for the ride. Salvation is something deeply, integrally, integrally related to our emotion, our spirits. It's more transforming than any power or anything that could possibly exist. The gospel comes and it finds us as dead men and women under the curse of God, and it changes us, it regenerates us so that we respond in faith. We're not responding by being impressed by miracles. We're not responding by doing the things that earn us a place in salvation. It is by faith. And therefore, it's only those who believe in Jesus as God's Son, Savior and Lord, who are saved. That's a very difficult thing for most people because it really challenges our ego. We don't want to be saved like that. We feel like we can, God can do most of it, but ultimately it would have to depend on us. We have to do something to add to that. It's, it's, it's not a spectacular faith. It's not a spectacular religion. It's not going to win the attention of the world and wow them, like jumping from the pinnacle of the temple and landing unharmed. Or like feeding 5,000, that would wow the people. Or like raising the dead, that would wow the people. Or predicting the future, healing the sick. I've heard some air quotes here, super prophets actually claim to have turned a hurricane aside. It's not impressive and wowing, like making angels' feather fall from the doctor I mean the ceilings, or gold falling from the venti- I mean the ceiling. But this is true religion. And most importantly, this is the religion. This is the thing which performs the greatest miracle of all, and that is by giving new life to a person whose spirit was dead. What is most essential here, the thing that we can absolutely not do without, is this. It is the Word of God. It is the Bible that exalts Jesus as Savior and Lord, and it calls on all of us to turn from our sin and trust in the risen Lord and Savior. And why is that so important? Well, look back at verse 10. It's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. Let me ask, I know there's a lot of unbelievers in this room today. Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you obeyed Him and repented? Have you allowed Him to do His work in you? Like I said, you can't keep the law. And the reality is, deep down inside, you don't want to anyway. God's not going to give you miracles to excite your religious appetite. He's already sent his son who already has descended from heaven. He's already ascended from the grave. He's already done those things. And so we have... God's word. It is not far off. It is as near as your mouth. It is as near as the Bible that you're holding in your, in your laps right now. And all that remains is for you to embrace that personally and pass from these false religions into the true religion of grace and receive life from the dead. Uh, let's pause here for prayer and I'll invite the men to come forward to distribute the communion and Whoever's leading us in music, Janet, Emily, are you the... Okay, let's uh, let's pray. Father, we set these common things aside, this bread and this wine, to represent the pure life of Christ lived in absolute obedience to the law's commands, fulfilling what we could not and frankly don't want to but he has done that for us. And the wine, which represents his spilled blood, which represents the price that was demanded on our part for our sin, that Christ has taken our place and has been our substitute for us. And while we set aside these common things for a holy, sacred use, we ask at this same time that you would take these common, ordinary lives and set them apart for a holy, sacred use as well. And as we take this communion, not 200 people with 200 lines to heaven, but as one church, one family, one fellowship, one bride of Christ that we are each part of, remind us that we are sharing this communion with each other as we remember you and as we celebrate this communion with you. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.
1: We have slides coming up. Please sing along with us as you feel led.
0: was like to be a cowboy, and most of you know I actually was a cowboy, not a rancher, because a rancher owns the cows, a cowboy just manages somebody else's cows. And One of the hardest jobs, no, I think the hardest job on a ranch is the job of the horse. Uh, When we were moving cattle uh, it would sometimes take two horses a day because we'd run one horse to a point of exhaustion in the morning and then we'd bring him back and then trade him out for another horse at lunchtime. You know, the horses don't actually like being run that hard and put away wet. They, they like frolicking around in the pasture with their buddies. And my first thing that I would have to do every morning when we were working, moving cows, I'd have to go catch a horse and sometimes two. And my grandkids think that the way you catch a horse is that you walk out there with your lariat and then you swing your lariat around and rope him by the neck. You know, I don't think you could do that. I don't think it's actually possible to catch a horse, especially in an open pasture like that. But you know how you catch a horse? You don't. They catch themselves. I, when I needed to catch a horse, I would take this bucket and I'd fill it with grain that it was, um, had been soaked with molasses. It was corn and, and oats and stuff like that. And then I'd walk out into the pasture with, with no lariat, no bridle, nothing. Just the, this bucket of grain. And I'd walk out into the pasture carrying this bucket of grain. You know the horses know what you're doing. <laughs> and, and, and they know that if they get caught, it's going to be a hard day's work for them. And they don't want to get caught. But uh, they can smell that molasses. By the way, it does taste pretty good. <laughs> And so they'll sneak up and try to just steal a little bite out of that bucket and then take off because they don't want to get caught. And then they'll step back and they think, wow, that tasted pretty good. So after a few minutes, now all the horses want in on the molasses grain. And so you're trying to push away the horse that you don't want so that you can get the horse that you do want. And so he'll snitch a few bites. and Pretty soon he's just standing there while you're feeding him. And I slip my belt off. And I'm petting him on the shoulder while I'm holding the grain. I'm petting him on the shoulder with my belt. And then I let my belt go over the top of his neck and then grab it at the bottom. I got gotcha. And I'll lead that horse back and put him in the corral. And if I need a second horse, I'll go do the same trick. Because they can't resist that. You know, we have an enemy who's always trying to capture us and enslave us and weigh us down, and we, 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 we know that. We know that's what he's trying to do. We know that he's continually trying to capture us, and we want to live free. We want to live with our pals frolicking around in the pasture a lot more than we want to be enslaved to this mean taskmaster. You know, the enemy doesn't come out into the pasture with a big lariat. He doesn't need to, because we're aware of what he's trying to do. What he does is he comes out with this bucket of sweet grain, and he knows that we can't resist it. And each one of us, we have our own signature sin. Each one of us has this thing that we keep thinking, if I do that, I'm gonna get caught. If I do that, I'm gonna be enslaved. But maybe I can just take a little bit this time and get away with it. Maybe just a bite and I can get away with that. And so while we're trying to see how much we can get without getting caught, before long we realize, I'm caught again. And you know what? I do this over and over and over to the same stupid horse, you know, hundreds of times, catching the same horse the same way. You'd think, when are you going to wise up? This is what I'm after. That's what the enemy does with us too. He, he comes back to us over and over again with the same temptations, and we, he doesn't have to catch us because we're so adept at catching ourselves. What communion about is about is the Lord saying, I know, I understand. I realize how you get drawn in by the temptation. I know the grain tastes good. I know right now you're feeling captured, you're feeling burdened, you're feeling put to work by a demanding taskmaster. Task master. I understand. And I forgive you. Let's go back and start over again. And so the cross invites us, as we need to be reminded every single month that we are forgiven of our sins, that Christ says, I understand, you're forgiven. God doesn't require anything more. He's satisfied with the price that Jesus has paid. And like I say every time we have this communion, if it was just the, the wine and just the blood, we would say that God forgives us, that makes us morally neutral, but it doesn't make us holy. It doesn't commend us before God. It is the righteousness of Christ credited to our account that God says, this is the righteousness the righteousness of Jesus which you now have. I invite you again, come to the table. Come and receive complete forgiveness. Let the Lord say, I understand your failure. I know that you give in to it. Let's do better next time. I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. Then on the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This represents the blood that Jesus shed When God looks at your sin and looks at your failure, he looks through the blood of Jesus, which was shed for you, and he forgives. The blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you that you loved us enough to send Jesus to die on the cross in our place. Thank you for this great, persistent love. Thank you that you are a God of forgiveness and grace. Lord Jesus, we thank you that in obedience to the love of the Father, you went to the cross and suffered such shame, such humiliation, such wrath, such indignation from God, and you did that for us. Holy Spirit, we invite you be poured out upon this congregation. Fill us with the fruits and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, especially the gifts of love and mercy, of forgiveness. We need those spiritual gifts. We don't want to be a stuffy church of good thinking, of good theology, of biblical understanding. We long to be a vibrant church filled with the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Please make that happen here in this church. And now as we come to you, once again, remembering the communion, the Last Supper, we invite you to change us, to give us a hatred towards our sin, to find it repugnant that even when we stumble, we quickly repent and recognize our mistakes, and then we would accept your forgiveness and your your grace. Father, we ask that you would do this because we are confident that that's your will for this church. That's your will for our lives. So change us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.